and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Brad Thor, who is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 20 thrillers, and his last bestseller was Near Dark. Brad, welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. It's good to be with you again, Fred. Thank you for having me. Brad, I've said this before. All you have to do is read one, and you'll be a Brad Thor fan for life. Well, that's high praise indeed. I appreciate it. That's uh, that's my job. Number one, first and foremost, is to entertain people. And if they like it enough that they come back for another one, uh, then you're probably doing something right somewhere in that process. Well, as you know, I'm a huge fan, and uh, you've been so generous and kind in, in mentioning my books and and your previous thrillers uh, blacklist and and my goodness you even had Beirut rules and spy masters so I want to thank you for that. Uh, it, it's it's my pleasure. Those those Easter eggs are fun for readers. And uh, listen, you've you've been on a lot of operations. You you understand that people aren't kidding when they tell you in real life that it's these long long spans of tedious boredom punctuated with very quick flashes of excitement and danger. Uh, so a lot of the guys that I know that that go out and conduct some of the nation's most uh, dangerous business are big readers. Uh, they they whether they're they're soldiers or people at uh, DSS or other places like uh, Langley, uh, a lot of books get read. So I've done that a couple of times and I'm such a big fan of yours that uh, it's fun for me to, to have a character reading a Fred Burton book in one of my books. Oh my goodness. Uh, I was shocked uh, when I came across that. Uh, Brad, I want to take you back to the beginning with uh, The Lions of Lucerne, which I just recently reread. And uh, Barnes and Noble called it one of the best political thrillers ever. As I was reading that, Brad, your attention to detail for a first book was amazing. How did you go about recreating the protective mission for the Secret Service agents on that uh, detail? Well, the hardest thing to do, first of all, let's back up. Uh, One of the worst pieces of advice aspiring writers get is to write what you know. Uh, And that's terrible advice. I always tell people, write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. If if, if it was true that you should write what you know, we never would have had a Tom Clancy because he was an insurance salesman. Uh, You know, I could go on and on of uh, some of the greatest writers out there that got into uh, whether it's writing about espionage and special operations like I do or military uh, thrillers. So like any other business in writing, you need to have an excellent network of contacts, Uh, the people that can actually help you get the details correct because the details are the bedrock of a good thriller. And believe me, there's things I did not get correct in Lions of Lucerne and the 
the the internet was just starting to really pick up speed then and and I heard from people but really really great well-meaning people that said listen this is actually the way this works I'd love to be a resource for you so on and so forth so I had a couple of contacts via family I had a, a gentleman who's like an uncle my dad's best friend who had uh, just retired from the FBI and was able to network me into different people uh, some secret service folks and so on and so forth that were really good at helping me understand how things work and then saying, okay, I can't answer that question. That That is too sensitive when it comes to uh, protecting a, uh, a member of the president's uh, family or the president himself, so on and so forth. So uh, you have to take a little bit of creative license, but if you're doing enough research and enough homework, Hopefully you get the ball close enough to the hole that people are uh, it doesn't break the, uh, the suspension of disbelief as people are reading the book. Yeah. And you did that so well. Uh, and uh, for those of you uh, who haven't read The Lions of Lucerne, I would strongly encourage you to go back to Brad's first book because anybody in the security protection field will will simply love it because the story centers around threat of a kidnapping a- against the president. So uh, it's it's a fascinating read. And, and you touched on something, Brad, that I think was so true. I, I can't tell you the times where I was either flying over... Um, the North Atlantic on either a hostage debriefing or going out for an investigation somewhere. And all of our agents uh, were, were constantly reading thrillers or fiction. And of course, you know, Le Carre and Graham Greene and Charles McCary and, and, and Tom Clancy, you know, was so hot during that time period of the 80s. Yeah, it's uh, those are the books that I grew up reading too. Whether if I'll I'll throw Freddie Forsyth in there, Robert Ludlum, uh, obviously Ian Fleming, uh, the Bond books were really exciting for me to read as a young man. So Stephen King likes to say that you should, uh, I used that phrase earlier and should have attributed to him, uh, write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. I also tell people that if you have been reading in that genre uh, for pleasure, you've developed a mini PhD. You know why certain books really resonated with you, whether you prefer, uh, you know, Frederick Forsyth over Graham Greene, it's the writing style or the pacing, whatever it is, but you really do have a good background. Uh, I don't know many successful, in fact, I don't know any successful authors that chose their genre because they said, oh, I can make a lot of money here. Uh, All the authors I know pick their genres because that's the kind of stuff that they love to read themselves. Brad, let's step back from the Lions of Lucerne. I was watching a interview you did that's on your website, which is just phenomenal for anybody looking to, to learn more about Brad and his books. And I saw what appeared to be your first interview where you talked about putting the story together and how you became an author. So I, I, I'm fascinated by how people get into businesses in general, but you've got a very unique story there. Would you mind sharing that? Sure. So it's an interesting way that I got into it. I've always wanted to be a writer ever since I was a little boy. And on my honeymoon, my wife said, what would you regret in your deathbed never having done? At that time, I was in TV. I had attempted to write a novel when I graduated from college. I got a few chapters into it and decided to shelve it because uh, I just thought being an author was the most solitary, uh, loneliest profession in the world. When in reality, I was afraid of failure. I stopped writing because I was afraid nobody would. What happens if nobody likes the book? What if I don't get it sold? I had saved money to take a year and to write a book. and, And I just I had that voice in the back of my head that I think a lot of us do in life that says, you know, 
know what? Probably better. Don't even risk the embarrassment. And that voice can prevent us from doing what we are most destined to do in life. And I often believe that what we're most destined to do, we are most afraid of. And there's an incredible sense of accomplishment and pride that comes from hitting that goal and turning off that voice or not listening to it and moving past it, pushing through. So I told my wife on our honeymoon that I wanted to write a novel and get it published. And she said, okay, well, when we get home, you need to start taking two hours a day, protected time, uh, making that dream come true. And that's what I ended up doing. And it's funny because on that honeymoon, uh, I, I'd been doing a travel television show for public television called Traveling Light. Uh, my dad is a no longer active Marine. He'd seen the world with the Marine Corps. My mom had been a flight attendant for TWA in the glamour days in the 60s. And she had seen the world as a flight attendant. So I loved travel. I got the travel bug from them. And I thought the travel made me a better American. Seeing my country from abroad, realizing uh, how, how fortunate I was to be born in the greatest nation in the history of the world, I thought was such a terrific experience. And I wanted to encourage other young people to not wait until they were retired to, to start traveling, but to do it when you get out of high school, do it throughout college, do it throughout your 20s, your 30s, your 40s. And one of the places that I had gone to film is Lucerne, Switzerland. And they have this beautiful monument to the 700 plus Swiss guard that died defending King Louis and Marie Antoinette in the initial throes of the French Revolution. Uh, and Mark Twain called it the most moving piece of rock in the world. It's this dying lion. It has a spear broken off in its side. And I really like the alliteration, the lion of Lucerne. And I said, OK, if I ever write a book, I'm going to call it the lions of Lucerne. I don't know what the book will be about and how I'll weave Switzerland in, but I really like that as a title. So I, I on my honeymoon, I'd already had this idea for a title for, for a couple of years. And I tell my wife I want to write a book. And we were stuck in a cafe in Amsterdam and it was pouring down rain outside. And we were waiting for our hotel room to be ready. And I picked up a copy of the International Herald Tribune to read while I was waiting to eat lunch. And I found this little, uh, they called it uh, their intelligence briefing section. And it was a story about a Swiss intelligence officer, real life, who had embezzled all this money from the Swiss army and was uh, training his own shadow militia high in the Alps with high-tech weapons from his own private arsenal. And I said, those are the lions of Lucerne. That's the story I'm going to write. And two years, I believe it was two years in a row, President Clinton had come to Park City, where I was living at the time, for his daughter's birthday to go skiing. And I was fascinated by the fact that they didn't shut down the entire mountain for the president. People were still allowed to ski. And I thought, oh, that's got to be such a difficult environment to secure, to, to keep the president safe, to keep his family safe. You know, where do you put the, the counter assault teams? Uh, how do you do all this? Yeah, how many people actually ski with the president? So that's, 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 the background to my very first book, Lines of Lucerne, not only how I decided to get started, but where the idea came from. And the final thing that happened on my honeymoon is we did an overnight trip on uh, on one of our uh, train journeys, and we shared a compartment with a lovely brother and sister from Atlanta, Georgia. And I sat up all night talking with the sister about books, and uh, she and her brother loved to travel. They were fans of my TV show. And when we pulled into the train station the next morning, I had already told her, she said, are you going to do more episodes? Are TV show. And I said, well, I'm also going to write a book because I told my wife and I figured the more people I told, I wouldn't be able to chicken out and back out of it. And when we pulled into the train station the next morning, we went to exchange business cards. And lo and behold, she was a sales rep 
for Simon and Schuster. And she said, if you write that book, I'd love to read it. And if I could help get it placed at Simon and Schuster, it'd be my honor. And I've been with Simon and Schuster for 20 books now. Wow, Brad, you've never told me that story. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's kind of a neat story. It's uh, it, things really do fall in in place once you make up your mind and commit to something. I really do believe that you know doors and sometimes it's not a door; it's a window. But things start opening up. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your short story. That's one that's very near and dear to my heart, being a former State Department uh, DSS special agent, and that's called the Athens Solution. What's the backstory of putting together that short story, which is a great read for anybody in protection? Well, so David Morell, fabulous author, uh, another person that I put right up there with Freddie Forsyth, who I loved reading growing up. Uh, I got to be friends with David because he put together a guild, the International Thriller Writers Association. And I joined, I was a founding member of that. And they asked a bunch of us to write a short story and contribute it for an anthology that James Patterson would edit and that we would sell to help raise money for our guild. And uh, at the Athens Solution was something that uh, that I uh, came up with and, and wrote for the anthology. In fact, the anthology did so well that we no longer have to charge dues. We actually can bring aboard new young authors and not charge them dues to our association, which is terrific. So we've become uh, kind of independently able to, to uh, function without uh, requiring uh, struggling authors and things like that to to make contributions, which is really nice. So the concept, I had lived in Greece and I love Greece and I wanted to set a story in Greece and I wanted something that was going to be action from the get-go. And so the story is a certain piece of American technology has been hijacked and it opens with a, a diplomat from the embassy in Athens working to get the piece of technology back, basically completing a, a ransom to get the tech back. And everything as often does in these stories uh, looks like it's all going to go great and it suddenly goes very very wrong and that's that's kind of the, the seed from which this uh this short story uh, takes off and develops yeah it's a great read for that anthology i i was not aware of that where do you find that brad so it isn't uh the the athens solution the 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 physical hardbound book. Uh, it's available in paperback. It's called Thriller, which I was against that. It was way too close to the uh, publication of uh, <laughs> Michael Jackson's album. So I, I I argued against the title and I argued against the artwork, which I didn't like either, but I was overruled. Uh, but it, So the Athens Solution is in the, the Thriller anthology, which is available Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or uh, the Athens Solution is available just, I think they sell it for 99 sense, but it's E only. So if you've got an e-reader, uh, if you've got a Kindle or a Nook, you can, you can go online and get the Athens solution for less than a buck. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai/center. That's ontech.ai/center. 
Brad, uh, have you ever considered producing uh, a film or writing scripts? I've yeah, I've thought a lot about that. Uh, you know, it's so much work to do one novel a year, which is what I do. You would think that after twenty novels, it would get easier, but uh, in my in my case, it only gets more difficult because I'm trying to top myself uh, every year, every time I come out with a new one, and that's part of my Midwestern upbringing. And in my dad, the Marine, and both my parents after uh, TWA and the Marine Corps were entrepreneurs in. And, uh, I always tell people I don't work for the publisher. I work for the readers. And I was taught growing up, never, they're my bosses. Never take your bosses, never take your customers for granted. And every day you show up to work, you treat it like it's your first day. And that if you're not careful, it could very well be your last day. So I put so much into each book each year that it'd be difficult for me to do anything on the side. But yeah, I would love to do that. We've we've been in and out of deals at Hollywood. Uh, I, I joke that I could write a, uh, a very very long book about all the twists and turns of that town. You know, Fred, there's so many beautiful people in LA and I think I've kissed every frog in that city. We've been left at the altar more times than a, than a woman in a, in a Jennifer Lopez movie. Uh, I mean, it really is like a bad romantic comedy, but uh, sometimes in life, uh, the best deal is the one you, you end up not making. So I think we've probably dodged a lot of bullets with uh, producers we've had deals with that we didn't end up consummating in the end. So uh, we've got one going now, actually. We, we're in a really good position now where we're trying to finalize the financing on a deal uh, with a streamer uh, that as soon as COVID is behind us, or we may go to a very low COVID country like New Zealand, uh, as soon as we get the financing done, that's the next question for us is do we wait out and shoot here in the United States or with the producer we've got on board, a director, they said, Brad, your books are so international. We, we don't need to do it in the United States, you know? We, we'd be welcomed with open arms, particularly in some place like New Zealand. They'd love to have a big American production just come down with actors uh, and the writers and then put their crews to work. I like putting Americans to work, but it's really been difficult here unless you have the Tyler Perry model, which is brilliant. I don't know if you're familiar with what he's doing in Atlanta, but he's basically created like a virtual biodome. And you come in and he's got di different zones. It's like going to the CDC and you've got to get tested and you got to quarantine and then you can start work on production. So he's actually been creating new content. And I think that's going to be the model for Hollywood going forward. They just have to figure out where do they replicate a facility like Tyler Perry's got, where he's got housing and production and post-production, all that kind of stuff. Well, I wish you the best on that. I've long believed that uh, Scott Harvath belongs uh, in Hollywood. Uh, Brad, when you look at Near Dark, which was your last bestseller, and I must say this, every year when I look forward to your books, as you know, uh, I, I'm always on social media saying, I hope Scott Harvath sends me a uh, pre-production uh, release. <laughs> How do you keep a character like Scott Harvath going now? And he he is now, uh, you know, had, when you start looking at uh, world calamities and, and, and plots and protection missions from around the world, how do you... How do you approach that now with trying to think of a new technology or a, or a new um, mountain for Scott to climb? It, it's a great question. And it is part of what makes my job so difficult and challenging. But if it was anything but difficult and challenging, it'd be boring. I'd lose interest in it. And so I am a voracious consumer 
of news. I was raised by my father, the Marine, and my mom, the flight attendant, to be a responsible, well-informed citizen. My parents were very, very serious about, we don't own this country. Uh, as adults, we are merely caretakers. We are stewards of this republic, and it's incumbent upon us to hand a freer, more equitable, more successful, more prosperous, safer nation down to the next generation than was handed to us. And to be a responsible steward, you need to be as up-to-date on what's going Going on not only domestically but globally. You have to understand what America's place is in the world and uh, the responsibilities that we have as such a great and noble nation. So, Fred, I read three newspapers a day. I've got the television on in the background. Uh, I'm so glad we're doing this via audio. And this isn't a video podcast because uh, I, I was up all night reading about the president and the first lady who our, our prayers go out to for a speedy recovery that they tested positive for coronavirus. This is a very precarious time. As someone who has worked for the analytic red cell unit at the Department of Homeland Security, I can think of a jillion, and a fiction writer, I can think of a jillion scenarios that I'd be very concerned with. There's a gentleman who's at the, I think it's the Council on Foreign Relations, who said that coronavirus is not going to change history. It's going to accelerate it, meaning there are bad actors out there who are going to move their timetables up. Uh, one of the people I'm particularly concerned with is China. And China's been looking at how we've handled coronavirus in particular, and it, they've learned lessons about what we're prepared to do and not prepared to do. So whether it's China, Russia, the Iranians, I think there's particular, this is a particularly precarious time because of what they can do just from a propaganda standpoint in sowing disinformation and uh, even launching a thing or two that we're going to have trouble responding to if the president is incapacitated. And that's why our prayers, and it's the right thing to do for our prayers to go out, uh, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, independent, whether you like the president, don't like him, we should all, for the sake of the country, be rooting for, for he and his wife to have a very speedy recovery. Can you imagine, Fred, trying to assemble people in the Situation Room at the White House when POTUS is got coronavirus? I mean, it's just, it's, an, it's a nightmare scenario. So anyway, so I'm a voracious consumer of news. It's where I get my ideas from. And for next summer's book, I'm working on something now that I can't believe no one has written about. And it is so cutting edge. It is so about to happen on your doorstep, not even tomorrow, but this afternoon kind of a scenario. And I'm really excited about it. And it, my, my, my big problem with the book is what to leave out. It is an embarrassment of riches. I've got so much information and so many different strings you can pull on for the plot that it'll probably end up being a thicker book than I've ever done before, which will make fans really happy. If you can you can keep them on the ride for even 30 seconds longer, it's, it's really appreciated by readers. What you said was uh, so spot on, Brad, when you start thinking of just the protection aspect of, of not only protecting the, the, the most powerful man in the United States, but the trickle-down effect for cabinet-level officials, for just general business when it comes to this COVID. It's, it's really changed the entire protection landscape. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And um, one of the things that I heard somebody, I don't know if I, if I was watching a business show, I think it was CNBC before you and I uh, came on, uh, somebody had said that the, the COVID virus has been politicized, but the virus itself is apolitical. It does not care. It doesn't care if you want to wear masks, don't want to wear masks. It, it is looking it, it is looking for dry grasses, dry tinder 
that it can rip through. And it does make it very, very difficult. I, I, listen, I've had an, I've been a principal enough times with my own PSD that I understand the, the difficulty in, <laughs> in protecting someone who understands what the mission is. Somebody who wants to get through the day and not have any embarrassment happen, it, God forbid any attacks happen. I mean, I'm a good principal. I'll do whatever my security director tells me. Uh, but I got to imagine that as you get into some more maverick personalities, people who have gotten to their positions by being, uh, you know, very direct or they want to do this, they want to do that. It's got to be tough. And then you throw COVID in, that adds a certain level of, uh, of um, difficulty to to the uh, function of a PSD. And then you've got other people who are wearing masks and it becomes difficult to read their faces and things like that. Yeah, it, it's a, it, these are these are challenging times, but um, I've met a couple of people I didn't think were very professional over my years of, of working with security specialists, but by and large, and I mean, that's two out of hundreds I've met. That, that is a it is a very, very good group. I really, really enjoy the people that commit themselves to that profession because they tend to be very driven, highly intelligent, very intuitive, you know, all the all the uh, tools in that toolbox that are going to make you successful. So as difficult as COVID is, that is one group that I know will make it and uh, and be successful. They'll find ways to double down and protect their their principals and their families to, to get them through this. Well, Brad Thor, I want to thank you for being on the OnTick Protective Intelligence Podcast today. Is there anything that I have not asked you that you would like to say? You know what? I I, I don't think so. I, I will tell you this. One of the interesting things that I'm sharing with people, you know, as we go through lockdowns and in our way of life has been turned upside down a little bit. I have turned to Marcus Aurelius in the Stoics. Uh, General Mattis had taken a, a book of Stoicism with him when he went to Iraq. And it has been, uh, if I can mention another author here, Ryan Holiday is fantastic. And he wrote a book called The Obstacle is the way. I think every NFL coach has read it. Every NBA coach has read it. CEOs have read it. And he's got not only the obstacle is the way that is kind of a primer, uh, primer, pardon me, on stoicism, but he's got a daily, here's one great piece of stoic wisdom a day, uh, kind of a, a daily meditation book on stoicism. And it has been an absolute treasure to read that again in the midst of all this, because I've been determined that this is not going to beat me. I'm going to beat it. And I'm going to come out of this tumultuous time with my family stronger and particularly my mind stronger and me stronger. So I would encourage, I want everybody to read Brad Thor books, but I actually think that Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way is, it's a very short book. It's an easy read. And I love Ryan. So I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to, uh, to recommend his book here at the end of this uh, very generous interview you've done with me, Fred. Well, well said. And I have I've also read that book and uh, can't say en enough good things about it. So thank you so much, Brad Thor, and please stay healthy and uh, do me a favor. I got to get a advanced copy of the next Brad Thor thriller. You you got it. I, I will put you on the top secret insiders list the moment uh, I speak to my pub publicist uh, after this podcast. Thank you so much, Brad. Thanks, Fred. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai/center. Again, that's ontic.ai/center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monteverdi Ride and was written by Brian Bristow. 
and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontech.ai or visit ontech.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.